The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. All right, let's uh, move on to the next item. Oh, no, gentlemen, please, don't get up. After the last few weeks, it just feels good to be on my feet. Thank you, God. You've uh, made a remarkable recovery, Madam President. Remarkable, indeed. But now I'm playing catch-up. I'm afraid during my illness I lost focus. I let something slide. Well, that's behind us now. Yes, it is. To the point. Supplies are running low and the people are worried. Well, they wouldn't be civilians if they didn't have something to bitch about. Well, I think that in this case they're entitled. Our inventory levels are tight, but they're not critical. But all the way across the fleet, people are reporting shortages of essential goods, and what they do get comes at a high price. They're turning to the black market. Last week, one of my aides came down with pneumonia. Billy had to trade liquor to get the antibiotics. It's the nature of the beast. People want what they want. A few trades would be one thing, Commander Fisk. That's reality. But I'm talking about criminals making outrageous demands on the people, so bottom line is I'm implementing a new fleet-wide trade policy. We need to be in control of our supply chain, not black market thugs. I am hoping that I can have the military support on this. Admiral, if you want Pegasus to run these dogs down, you just give us the word. Our people will do whatever it takes to get this under control. And it's good to have you back, Madam President. It's good to be back. Thank you, Admiral. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, November 17, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome once again to the show today where 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation. And today on the show, freedom of speech meets freedom of trade. Free minds meet free markets in a blend that I think will demonstrate how each is inseparable from the other and how maybe even can be a bit of a threat. Black markets versus free markets, free speech versus tattletale speech. We're going to look a little bit at the snitching culture that seems to be growing over in Europe and maybe coming here later in the show, eh, Robert? Yeah, we have a caller hopefully coming in at the bottom of the hour. Yep, and um, in any case, I understand you wanted to start the theme off with some... Discussion on the whole, what we just heard in that opening clip, which I believe was from Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, Battle, the new Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, it's about black markets. Uh, talk about for a little bit here for a while. Mm-hmm. I call it an anti-concept, and that's a, a term coined by Ayn Rand, of course, uh, our controller's favorite philosopher. <laughs> um, the anti-concept according to Rand, is an unnecessary and rationally unusable term designed to replace and obliterate some legitimate concept. And uh, the black market, in this case, is an anti-concept replacing free market, meaning free from the government taxation and regulation. It's an anti-concept because it's all-encompassing of not only the criminal, but the virtuous. If somebody kills somebody and then, for example, harvests their organs and sells them on the so-called black market, the real crime becomes the sale of the organs rather than the murder. A laborer 
who sells his labor for cash and doesn't claim it as income to the Canada Revenue Agency or the IRS in the States is also a part of the black market and is smeared with the same criminal association as the murderer was uh, the organ seller. Mm -hmm. And yet what the laborer is doing was perfectly legal, if not natural, prior to the implementation of the Income War Tax Act of 1917. That's when income taxes, personal income taxes started here in Canada. Actually, business taxes started in 1916, business income, but personal, 1917. Now, a laborer selling his labor for unreported cash back in 1916 was an upstanding man earning an honest living. But in 1917, if you did the exact same thing, you're now a member of the black market. Today, all transactions must be reported to the government. Quite technically, even bartered goods must be reported as income, and the appropriate percentage of capital gain must be submitted in cash to the government. So if I sell your pig for a chicken, we have to figure out what the value was for my profit, get some cash somewhere, and give it to the government as a percentage for income tax. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely nuts. If a neighbor helps uh, you to move, you pay him with a bottle of rum, for example. That goes on all the time. The neighbor is obligated to report the value of the rum to the government as income. Not to do so puts him in the black market. It's ubiquitous. It's absolutely everywhere. You download torrents. Are you allowed to accept your Christmas presents without reporting them? Because um, I have gifts, heard gifts, technically... Yeah, gifts can be an exception. Well, then call everything a gift. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there are there are technicalities about it, but as I say, um, the, crim- the crime, any, of course, is working. Uh, the crime is working. Yeah, we're going to get into that too. As a matter of fact, all work is crime. Yep. I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second. Oh, I believe that all my life. Yeah, I try to avoid breaking the law. <laughs> so, what was once a free market in trade for cash or kind has now been labeled with the anti-concept black market. So at the root of this is the belief that all economic behavior should fall under the jurisdiction of the government. All of it. For a man to earn a living, he must first submit to the tribe, meaning which, us, the collective. Which is literally almost the exact, exact opposite of the t- term capitalism. I mean, if you had to find an anti-concept to capitalism, that's it right there. Where the government runs everything in the economy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We don't live in a capitalist no, society. No. So we have to look to the tribe and our neighbors, or the collective, the society, and give them a cut of your profit, no matter what you're doing. For example, the, the government always has to have its cut. What's this? This is slavery. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no other way about it. This is slavery. Uh, it stems from a return for, uh, to a return from a civilized society of individuals acting in concert for the betterment of each player in a transaction to a tribal society where we have today a government dictating what transactions are acceptable and which ones are not, where the government coercively interferes in the livelihood of both parties, becoming a parasite for the supposed benefit of the tribe. Over the past 94 years, since the implementation of the income tax here, most of us have become accustomed to this sense of tribal entitlement to the profit of others. By the way, just as an aside, did you know what the penalty was for not filing your income taxes back in the first year of 1918? What was that? $100 a day. No kidding. That you were late. $100 a day. You know... No, but who would make that much? You know what the average income back then was? (laughs) 
about $3,000. The average Amazing. tax return was about $20 of taxes paid. If you were late paying that $20, you paid $100 a day in fines. And don't forget in Ontario, <laughs> the income tax has only existed since the late 60s. As a provincial income tax, yes. Cor- correct, yes. Yeah, to pay for health care. Health care. Yeah. An- another example of this sense of entitlement and the outlawing of what was once a person's natural right to conduct business in a free market are competition laws, also called antitrust laws. But before I'm going to talk about antitrust laws, we have a caller on the line who wants to talk about another black market issue, and that is tobacco. Hello, caller. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, what you're talking about today um, sort of made me think of the the whole fight against contraband cigarettes or, uh, you know, black market cigarettes or, or res smokes, whatever you want to call them. Yep, perfect and example. I, I I see these billboards around town saying, you know, why you shouldn't buy them, you know, why you shouldn't produce them. But all to me is all that saying to me is the only one who's allowed to profit over uh, a lethal substance is the government. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) No, it's a perfect example. It's an an excellent example, actually. Thanks for the call. So, as a matter of fact, you're going to find a thousand different examples of that. Um, Pot laws. Mm-hmm. outlawing the uh, distribution and sale of uh, marijuana. All this thing is, is, is restrictions of trade. Restrictions of trade, yeah. yeah. Nothing really to ever do with the substances or issues involved. No, and I love the billboards out there. They basically say, don't sell cigarettes, uh, black market cigarettes, or don't buy them. Why? Because you could end up in jail. that's the rationale for it come on give us a better reason why don't you say what the real reason is don't buy black market cigarettes because you'd be cutting in on our market (laughs) um antitrust laws here's a black market cigarettes could kill you (laughs) (laughs) not like the the white market cigarettes is that what the other market's called i don't even here's a bit from ayn rand from i just pulled this out of the ayn rand lexicon about antitrust laws. I'm quoting from Rand here. Under the antitrust laws, a man becomes a criminal from the moment he goes into business, no matter what he does. For instance, if he charges prices which some bureaucrat judges too high, he can be he can be prosecuted for monopoly or for successful intent to monopolize. If he charges prices lower than those of his competitors, he can be prosecuted for unfair competition or restraint of trade. And if he charges the same price as his competitors, he can be prosecuted for collusion or conspiracy. There's only one difference in the legal treatment accorded to a criminal or to a businessman. The criminal's rights are protected much more securely and objectively than the businessman's. And that's so true. In other words, it is against the law to be in business. At any point in time, you are either selling your products higher than your competitors, lower than your competitors, or exactly the same as your competitors. And no matter and all of those are against the law. You know, and no matter what you charge, it's a fixed price by you. So it's a fixed price, <laughs> right? <laughs> you can't avoid a fixed price charge either because, well, I didn't just make it up. The price, was, price wasn't floating on its own, right? You now, these particular laws have been around uh, longer than the uh, income tax. They, I think they first started in the States in the 1880s. But here's a, I found this poem terribly online. misled, Misle- misled thinking, completely backwards. Oh yeah, Do- yeah. doesn't doesn't understand the nature of a market at all. Now, I found this poem online, dealing with the exact same thing, and it's taken from 
um, a poem by R.W. Grant, who wrote it in 1966. It was called The Incredible Bread Machine. Oh, I remember that. Do you remember oh, that? Yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a complete book, and, and a movie was made There's a little the film about title. it, yep. a five-minute film on YouTube. Anybody can get it there. I'll post the link on our YouTube fan page. I mean, um, our Facebook fan page. But here, here's a, an excerpt from that. The rule of law in complex times has proved itself deficient. We much prefer the rule of men. It's vastly more efficient. Now let me state the present rules, the lawyer then went on. These very simple guidelines you can rely upon. You're gouging, if your price, you're gouging on your prices if you charge more than the rest, but it's unfair competition if you think you can charge less. A second point that we could make to help avoid confusion, don't try to charge the same amount, that would be collusion. You must compete, but not too much, for if you do, you see, then the market would be yours, and that's monopoly. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cute. <laughs> but have a look at the whole video on YouTube. It uh, goes into a lot about the making of bread and an example of how the government destroys wealth. The point of antitrust laws, to me, I think, is to hang a sword of Damocles over the heads of businessmen, all businessmen. At any given point in time, the government can and has destroyed wealth, raised the prices of goods, and restricted economic choices under the guise of encouraging competition. Ironically, they've also created monopolies and subsidized one business over another in the same field. Coercive monopolies do not exist ever. Any, anywhere. Without no such thing. The imp without the interference of government. You know, that, that was the biggest thing that converted me from my, my previous liberal thinking days to my more free market thinking. And that was when I was challenged to find a single, single example of a monopoly that existed without a government edict or law. Couldn't find one, could couldn't you? Couldn't find one at all. Looked all around the world, couldn't do it. And I said, wow. And yet the, the myth lives on. Yeah. Here's, some here's some examples of government uh, monopolies or intrusion actually doing exactly the opposite of what they are purporting to protect us from with antitrust laws. Consider the banking industry and the telecommunications industry. The government has also entered into the private enterprise, uh, making it difficult for one business to enter the market or to compete. And I'm reminded of things like uh, Petro-Canada. Uh, it's since been privatized, but remember that back in the uh, 80s or 70s. Mm -hmm. And the CBC in the uh, broadcast industry. Talk about an unfair competition advantage there. Well, wow, the we see a lot of complaints about that in the daily free press, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah, and Sun Media as well. The businessman has gone from an individual seeking profit by producing goods or services to willing customers to becoming the host of a parasitic society which feels an entitlement to those goods and services. The businessmen, the inventors, the creative geniuses who create and sell these marvelous things which surround us are just a means to the tribe's ends. Whereas before, we admired the innovative uh, businessmen and erected statues in their honor. We now tax them, regulate them, and blame them for their successes and our failures. We now have labeled them the dreaded 1%. And we, being the majority 99%, must rein in their excesses and bring them to heel. They must do the bidding of the collective for the good of all, and they must not expect to profit too much from their genius. Well, we must be doing well. <laughs> Where this drama will end is not anyone's guess. It's played itself out in history many times before. Communist China, Soviet Union, Cuba, North Korea, Nazi Germany. These nations have played it out the drama to its bitter end. Let's hope we don't go there.
and of course the, the the constant job problems we're having are are, are partially responsible or, or a consequence of this action. Oh, agreed. Know? Yeah. Okay, we're at the quarter hour. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back on the other side, we'll be switching a little bit to the subject of free speech and some of the issues that have been raised over free speech as we come back to the greater issue of the market because of what's been going on with the Occupy movement, just not just here in London, but also across North America. We'll return right after this. Now then, uh, next is item income from gambling winnings. You mean to tell me they tax... Gambling winnings? Sure, it's income, ain't it? Let's see, I've won about $25 throughout the year playing pool. $25 shooting pool. <laughs> then I got that first prize over at Salvatore's Pizzeria. Yeah. High score on a pinball machine. They gave me that horse with the stomach in its clock. I mean, the clock in its stomach. That's a... That was worth about $15. Uh, horse with clock in stomach. $15. Well, you see, now, these are the items that they're checking up on you. There's no doubt about that. Then there was that, uh, the $5 I won at the raccoon picnic, winning a three-legged race. Three-legged race, $5. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. What? Remember about six months ago we had the all-night poker game? Yeah. I won $85. $85? You think they could have found out about that? Boy, that's a large amount of money. Now, that's the kind of an item that they're really investigating you for. $85. Now, there are different places where you can't use words, right? I mean, sometimes the minister's wife is one. You definitely don't say them to the minister's wife. And all of those thousands of other places <laughs> that... Yeah, you know, like, hey, come on, mixed company here. Hey, there's ladies and kids here. Hey, six. I got a really filthy joke for you, Bill. But there's a lady here. <laughs> oh, that's okay. She's filthy too. Go ahead, Glenn. Let's hear. <laughs> Depends on who you're with, right? It, they're just the words we can't say all the time. Now, I wanted my list to reflect an area I was interested in. The time that you can't say them all the time that I picked was radio and television time. That's one of the places where we can't use them, and uh, I guess that's uh, largely because uh, television is uh, paid for by private industry and uh, regulated by the government, so, you know, you think of what, think of what those two groups are doing, <laughs> even to each other, you know. And, uh... <laughs> George Carlin making a very good point that even free speech has its limits depending on where and whom you are with. And I think that's a lesson that's been lost in all the discussions about freedom of speech and democracy that, that are carried on in such a philosophical vacuum that we see in the protests around us, the occupations, and even in, in this, to the sense that we discussed them on just right recently on our broadcasts. Now, of course, I would be among the few, Robert, who would be willing enough to say that the right to freedom of speech is an absolute. And yet I already know from bitter experience that a lot of people would interpret that statement as meaning that I would support the right of anyone to say anything, anywhere, at any time, without any prohibitions or consequences for doing so. And that's how a lot of people, that's what they think freedom of speech is. And it's not. So let me be clear about that. That is not freedom of speech. That describes the Occupy movement, really. A movement that is a direct threat to the idea 
of freedom of speech. And just as anyone has a right to freely express themselves, to, you know, so too each person has a right not to listen and not to have to listen. Just as freedom of religion must include freedom from religion, so too freedom of speech includes the right of freedom uh, from the unwanted speech of others. Does that make sense? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I exercise that quite often. I'm going to, going to do it to the occupiers very soon, too. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's do, an issue that's dead. We do it every time we watch TV when we switch the channel. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's as simple as that. And this fact seems to have been grossly avoided, evaded, and misunderstood in the current wave of demonstrations referred to as the Occupy movements. Movements which, of course, I must emphasize, are not about free speech or even about a democratic discussion of, of ideas of any sort. Now, yes, everyone has a right to speak. But none of us has a right to be heard. And why is that? Because that requires the consent of another person. And consent is a voluntary condition. You know, it's a two or more way street, if you want to put it that way. So if you want to put another way of expressing it might be to say non-consenting speech between adults is not free speech. And it is a fact that the right to disagree with one another is a key indicator that separates and defines citizens of free nations from those who live in non-free nations. And like all freedoms, and if I may be forgiven for using that plurally incorrect term, because there's only freedom, there's not a bunch of freedoms, but we sp speak of it that way, freedom of speech also means responsibility of speech. And I know that to some, uh, that, that they hear that too, and they say, well, that's another form of censorship. You know, but just as freedom is you know, inseparable from responsibility, so is freedom of speech. But my point is not about the specific content of the speech or message. In that regard, the speaker must simply bear responsibility for the consequences of his speech, which does not make the speech subject to prior restraint or censorship. No, the responsibility I'm talking about when I'm referring to speech is perhaps more about the means than the message, the way in which the message is delivered. So what is freedom of speech expressed in this way? Well, I would put it like this. Freedom of speech is the responsibility to express oneself at one's own time and expense using one's own property. Make sense? This is what defines the proper limit on free expression, without which freedom of speech cannot exist. One cannot demand the property or rights of others as the platform on which to express one's own opinion. That's just doesn't even make sense. It doesn't, doesn't even follow at all. Now, note that this definition and context do not restrain the content of anyone's message. It insists only that the parties involved in any exchange of ideas or information do so consensually. Quote, you ever heard this before? The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Yeah, I've heard that. Never heard that. <laughs> well, with those words, we are always reminded that Robert and I are guests. Right? That's right. As is anyone else who might participate in our weekly show, welcomed into someone else's quote-unquote home, you know, that should be the station, subject to that owner's established rules and practices. And in this case, of course, the home and owner I'm referring to is CHRW. So imagine if instead of opening the show with the weekly disclaimer we have now, we open instead with this one, quote, the transmitter and facilities used to express the following opinions are those of 94.9 CHRW and do not reflect the assets or property of the participants. <laughs> okay. I like that, yeah. I, I thought it was a great way to offset the difference. 
So whatever restrictions on our, quote, speech the HRW may place upon us from time to time, our compliance with this doesn't constitute censorship or prior restraint, but is kind of part of the deal we made with the station that allows us to use its own assets, which we do not own. Okay, so I can't complain about that. And even with whatever station taboos they might have, we've created a lot of our own on top of that, haven't we, Robert? Oh, sure, there are things, things we won't do on the yeah. show. And they don't have to do with bad words or anything, even just uh, formatting. Formatting, like how we, you know, we won't use, we try not to use the same clips twice. We try, you know, things like that. We have all these little rules that sometimes become an obstacle to our, our own efforts here as well. So I just want to make it clear that that's what freedom of speech is. And if we look at it that way, the situations we see with all the occupation movements and everything practically resolve themselves, don't they? Once we understand that, you know, say what you want, but use your own property. You can't camp on my front porch, on my front lawn, or on this corporation of the city of London's parks. What a lot of people don't understand, too, it extends to the Internet. Remember, the Internet is a private vehicle. Mm-hmm. Facebook is a private organization. You go there on, on, based on their terms. That's correct. If they choose not to... Uh, uh, to to delete some of your posts, that's their right. That's, that's right. not censorship. That's their saying that I don't have the right to listen to that or to read it. Correct. Now, that's what I would call responsible speech. Now we're going to go to what we might call legally protected irresponsible speech. And we're going to be going to a break in a few minutes. And when we return at the bottom of the hour, we'll, we'll be turning our eyes to some disturbing developments overseas in Europe as, as governments there begin to turn citizen against citizen in attempts to control economic and personal decisions. Now, considering whether or not something similar could happen on this side of the ocean, on this North America here, I thought I'd first pass on the following tale. London Free Press columnist Woody, or Connie Woodcock in the November 12th edition of that paper writes, and I quote, One sunny afternoon in early fall, a bunch of my neighbors were standing around watching a sick raccoon die on somebody's front lawn. In the old pre-gun registry days, someone would have gone home, got a shotgun or twenty-two, and put the poor creature out of its misery. But as one said to me, his gun wasn't registered and he didn't want to be seen with it. Someone might call the cops, he said, or a cruiser might happen by. That, in a nutshell, is what's wrong with the gun registry. It makes criminals out of perfectly ordinary people doing nothing wrong, while it makes near criminals out of those who have registered. There's a good reason why the long gun registry supporters still don't get why it needs to end with its data destroyed. And it's simple. Their names aren't on it. (laughs) End quote. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yes. It's funny, we see a lot of other trends that seem to move in that direction, but I don't think they're all the same. We've seen London Municipal Councillor Steve Orser proposing the installation of cameras now for for surveillance in that area bounded by Dundas, Adelaide, Rectory, that area there. Mm -hmm. And I've heard various things on the cost, but I I don't think that's the thing we're talking about. London, Ontario also has a snitch line for crime, and um, where people can... I think it's called Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers. Yeah. Of course, that's actually North America way. Oh. And uh, where people can anonymously leave tips to the police to follow up if, you know, if they suspect a crime is being committed. And, of course, the usual targets at this time of year are things like grow-ups and houses and the pot issue. I could, I could go on and on, but I won't right now. So where is all this leading to? Well, we can look over the ocean to get a glimpse of what is yet to come. There are so many legal barriers to trade from drugs to technology that being a lawbreaker is almost literally unavoidable i think you made that point pretty clear in the opening part of the show there robert yeah so 
I think instead of trying to obey laws that are unobeyable, citizens begin instead to try to avoid being caught. As citizen turns against citizen in, a, in an effort to, you know, deflect attention to others, and you create this culture of, of snitching. Paranoia. And, yeah, and to gain a, an unearned advantage over others as well by getting the government's favor. So when we return after this following break, we'll be taking a look at what has been happening in Europe, particularly in Sweden, where, as you'll hear when we return, how that country is violating almost every understood principle of justice that I hold dear (laughs) to ensure what they call economic competition among companies and businesses who are in the same line of business. It's funny, they always think that that's who's competing. They never think that the chocolate manufacturer might be competing in some way with the guy who's building furniture, you know, like, because they are. Everybody competes in the marketplace. It's not always just similar industries. Everybody's competing for the same consumer dollar, for the same consumer, for the same uh, ultimate pie that exists at any given point in time. But apparently this sounds like some ultimate snitch line, and it sounds very much like something our our own governments would love to get their collectivist legislatures and parliaments to work on. And for all I know, maybe a lot of Canadians might even support this idea. I'll uh, bet you all the occupiers would. See what you think when we return right after this. He'll be fine. Let's move. I'm not going. You said you'd help me. I have already gone too far. He was threatening you I had no alternative. But I must be here when he recovers his senses. I will try to explain. Maybe if I am lucky, he will not have me executed. We are leaving. Your time here is over. I will not leave this new world. Your new world is a prison. You're under his control. When are we not in prison? Hmm? When are our lives free from the influence of those who have more power than us? <laughs> if this new world is a cage, then it is a cage of gold, of marvels of opportunities. If this prince is violent, violence can be tempered. You can't stay here forever, Leonardo. Europe is your home. Europe is despicable. Here, I am free to do what I wish, free from judgment, free to fail, but without a sense of shame, without, without the taunts of the ignorant. If a company breaks the rules and participates in a cartel in order to fix prices in share markets, the Swedish Competition Authority is able to make an unannounced inspection of the company's premises, a so-called dawn raid. The consequences for companies involved in cartels are substantial fines, large amounts of negative publicity and damage to their brand. But there are ways out of a cartel. The company that is first to notify the Swedish Competition Authority of a cartel may avoid the fine under the Swedish leniency program. Someone takes the initiative to set up a cartel in the first place. Some are invited, some may not realize that it is illegal. They only see the business advantages. Others do understand what is involved, but the temptation to gain market share, win contracts, achieve better results, and strengthen the position of the company is too great. The reasons may vary, 
that the cartel is a fact. It can be compared to serious economic crime. For a company to avoid a fine, it has to be the first to notify the Swedish Competition Authority of a cartel. In addition, the company is required to submit all known facts and continue to cooperate with the authority throughout the investigation. The company must, of course, cease all involvement in the cartel. The fines can amount to 10% of the company's turnover. Furthermore, the managing director may be subject to a trade prohibition. Participating in a cartel means risking severe consequences. A company has everything to gain from being the first to report a cartel. Welcome back to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM, where you can call 519-661-3600 to join us in our conversation or give us some feedback at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can also find us on Facebook, and now we've uh, just set up a Twitter Twitter uh, page. Uh, just Right CHRW is our Twitter feed. Now, that little clip we just heard from was compliments of the Swedish Competition Bureau. Is that, is that right, Bob? Swedish Competition so. Bureau? Yes. yes, Swedish Competition Authority, and you can find that clip online, and I'll post a link to it on our Just Right fan page as well. And here on the line to discuss that clip as well as some other fascinating events going on over in Sweden, is our Euro correspondent and former Londoner, Paul Lambert. Hello, Paul. Hi, Robert. Howdy. Hi, Paul. How are you? Good to hear you after such a long time. Yes. So yes. How's Bob doing? Good. So what do you think of that clip, Paul? And why don't you just walk us through what's going on over there? Well, it's very much what you were saying in the first part of the show. There's this new culture of uh, snitching. Uh, there's really no other way to describe it. And uh, it's been uh, really elevated in, almost into a moral duty, a, a civic duty. Um, what, what you just heard, that was actually, that is uh, what was part of a much larger clip. Uh, it's actually part of a, a short film uh, that's uh, given out to different companies by the Swedish Competition Authority. Um, as, you, as you heard, just like in most other countries, it's illegal to form a cartel in Sweden without a dispensation from the Swedish Competition Authority. So you can form one if you get permission ahead of time. That right. uh, wasn't clear. Now, I haven't been able to find any statistics on how widespread or common the formation of cartels truly is in Sweden, but it's certainly common enough for the government to have launched this campaign, which now encourages member companies of a cartel to come forward and be the first to inform on their co-conspirators in now, the cartel. Now, are, are, is this clear? Are you telling me that you can form a cartel if you get permission first? Yes, and then the very uh, the, the web page won't help you because it's all in Swedish. But the web page on which that uh, presentation is originally found also has links showing you how you can apply for a permission to form a cartel. And basically, you have to be able successfully to argue that uh, it would be better for the consumers at large to have a cartel instead of a bunch of individual companies competing for the same market. Wow. So then the issue is not even about the cartel as such, is it? No, no. It's, uh, it is a cartel. It's about showing his boss, really, isn't it? I mean, exactly. You have a cartel, yeah. if you get their permission, if it's your own idea, then you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so just explaining how it is, it was explained quickly in that film. A company found guilty, I say guilty, using quotation marks, of being part of a cartel, uh, faces fines for up to a tenth of the company's entire annual receipt, and the CEO and board of directors will personally be under an injunction forbidding them from engaging in business at all for a period to be determined, to be determined from the courts. Um, it's unfortunate you couldn't see this actual... Uh, did, you, did you actually see this entire film, either of you, yourselves? Well, oh, yes. We saw the one that yeah. you sent us, and, and there were English subtitles on the discussions that were going on, but that wasn't something we could put on very easily on the radio. No, no, no I understand that, but I, I just I wondered what you thought about it. I personally thought that the, the psychological manipulation of the film was absolutely breathtaking, and that it really played upon a lot of really negative human emotions. Well, I, I found it reminiscent maybe of, of Nazi Germany where people would turn in other people for being Jews or, or breaking a black market or, you know, entering in the black market or in communist uh, Soviet Russia. No, it's exactly, exactly the same. At least they're asking people to do much the same thing. Um, you'll notice uh, in this film that uh, they have one, they ask, the viewers are asked to identify one character who we can call the Fink. Who he's, he enters into this cartel, but he's really uneasy about it at first. And he talks to his boss about how they really need to get out of the cartel and they really need to report this cartel to the Swedish Competition Authority. And so the next scene shows him spilling the beans on the entire cartel in front of the authority. And then later, the rest of the cartel faces an inquisition while he's sitting pretty. And what really, uh, what really would get to most people in Sweden, what really appealed to them, is the very last scene where the Fink and his boss are sitting looking so self-satisfied that yeah. they did the morally right thing. Yes. And you're totally forgetting that they would not be in that position if they didn't do what they think is the morally wrong thing in the first place. Yes. <laughs> so really, I, I see this... Uh, you, you mentioned Crime Stoppers a bit earlier, and Crime Stoppers has uh, been used by drug dealers, abused by drug dealers to think out other drug dealers in order to... Uh, cut down on the competition. And, and, I, and I see the same sort of thing going to happen with uh, this new policy by the Swedish Competition Authority. What I could do, for instance, um, you both know that I, I do run a small business in my town, and uh, say if I had five competitors, I would I could set up a meeting with those five competitors and set up a joint price pricing policy, which is completely you know against the law. And then I would immediately call the Swedish Competition Authority think out the rest of this cartel, they'd be put out of business, and then suddenly I'm not faced with any competition at all. So really I'd be, de be defeating its own purpose. <laughs> it's actually providing a, a tool to unscrupulous businessmen to uh, destroy competition. Isn't that ironic? You know, it's ironic, but I wonder who would want to get in on a deal like that. If I, if I were getting in on a deal with four or five of my competitors... And we all knew that the first one of us that squealed on the others would get off scot-free and <laughs> leave the other four dangling, let's say. Why would I get into a deal like that in the first place? Well, what you're saying is basically that this law is, is going to be effective. Well, in a, in a bizarre way. I don't think it's going to be effective at what they want it to do. I think it's going to be effective at giving unscrupulous businessmen a means of destroying their competition. I don't think that's effective. I, I mean, yeah, it's effective at destruction. No, that, that's, the, that's the point I was getting at. It, it really is an invitation for the worst elements. So, but it always is. Uh, again, it, someone who wants to make a monopoly has to use the 
government and its power to bring it about. It could never come about just in through honest means. Well, that's an interesting observation. That again confirms what we said earlier in the show when I when I first tried years ago to find a monopoly that existed without some licensing or, you know, government involvement. But what I what I really found uh, fascinating was uh, even in that clip, if you're one of the conditions for escaping prosecution, was that you yourself had to leave the cartel. Now, to me. Doesn't that immediately in itself prove that a cartel is no danger? It, it has no power to force a company to join, no power to force a company to leave. It has no power to set prices for companies outside the cartel. It, uh, I really don't. I really don't see what the point is. But, no, I think you have a good point there, and it, and it cuts to the heart of the matter, and that is the fact that cartels, as they are called is simply businessmen agreeing voluntarily, without force, to act in concert for their own benefit. There's nothing wrong with that. As consumers, we either we always have a choice not to, to buy their products and go elsewhere. And if we can't go elsewhere, we can always set up our own competing uh, business. Uh, there's no force involved. The only force that comes involved is when the government gets into it. And just think of the, the biggest cartel out there. It's called OPEC. What is it? It's an organization of countries, of nations, of governments. Sure. Well, you, well speaking of oil, the, in the past, a very much maligned cartel was uh, Rockefeller Standard Oil. And people forget the history that even at the time when the cartel was legal, there were still plenty of competitors outside that cartel. And Standard Oil still had to offer its product in a competitive manner. Of course. So, uh, so what, what it's really being aimed at, and by the way, this cartel building or fixing prices, that's exactly what labor unions do, both <laughs> legally and with the moral support of much of the public at large. Well, fixing prices, like I said, is, is a natural thing anyone in economics does. You, any price you ask is a fixed price. When they when they say fixed prices, oh, that price is the same as somebody else's that it shouldn't be, and that's always in their mind. But but you know, even if you talk about a cartel, how really is a cartel any different, really, from a single monopoly player in a given field, or if it was just a single company instead of five companies that decided to become one company? You know, is it really well, any I'll different? Well, I'll, I'll explain the difference uh, as well in the, in the Swedish legislation. A cartel is also if, say, five companies, they all decide to get together and each one would then specialize. Say if it's a small town like where I live and there's a very large international customer coming and no one of us could really efficiently per, put forth a tender and we decide, okay, company A, you'll provide labor. Company B, you do accounting. Company C, you do promotion. Even that is not usually allowed. That's the sort of cartel you'd have to get permission from the competition authorities for as well. And uh, it's really just how is it any different than just if they a temporary merger of companies that's not made clear in the legislation either. Or even companies but just, uh, you know, offering services each to each other. That's almost what that sounds like. I mean, or, or division of labor, for heaven's sake. <laughs> now that might be why maybe their definition of cartel is not the same as ours. Is, is there something a little different there? Well, like any sort of unjust legislation or law, there's always a, an element of irrationality. Like it is, the rules are never consistent. It, in one case, one thing will be considered another. Just like you said, if you make too much money, you're a monopoly. If you charge too little, you're 
undercutting competition and if you're collusion, if you have the same price. There's no clear line to it. But what, is, uh, but what I really find scary is just how open this whole culture of, of snitching is. But so I'll, I'll tell you one thing. It comes on the heels of sort of a mirror culture where black work, uh, off the work, books work, is discussed very openly and very shamelessly. I mean, people put ads in the newspaper looking for off-the-books work and off-the-books employees. Actually so calling it, it that? Sort of, oh, yes. It, it's called black work. People will actually put ads in the newspaper. Now, some newspapers re- refuse to run such ads, but then other people will just put posters on, like, on sign boards. Or, it's just openly discussed, especially in smaller towns. Uh, it's understood that someone will be hired to do a job painting or removing snow, and it's understood it'll be cash only, no paper. Interesting. The total stranger. Fascinating. Listen, it's quarter two right now. Let's take a quick break and listen to this excerpt from a very famous movie done, I think it was in the very late 1940s or very early 50s, around then, called I'm All Right Jack, which uh, starred Peter Sellers originally, or as one of the main characters. A brilliant movie on the whole subject of labor and snitching and all of the collusion that goes on between government and business and labor and labor. We'll be back in two minutes to continue our conversation. Down. Dead simple. I must say, it looks a jolly efficient little job. Must be great fun driving it. Yes, well, all you've got to worry about is to remember to plug in here at nights when you Uh knock off work so the batteries are fully charged when you come in in the morning. Terrific. It's so simple. Man, I'll say, it must be colossal. Yes, well, we're on a fixed bonus system, so there's no need to go flogging your guts out. Oh, I dare say, but well, after all, one of these trucks must be able to do the work of a dozen men. Joy, we got another one. Go on, go and tell him. Yes, well, right here, Charlie. So, when he started shooting off about efficiency and doing the work of ten men, Brother Carter suggested that I should report the matter formally to the shop stewards. Very commendable, lad. that everybody's out grabbing for himself. Mm-hmm. But in Britain, it's so different. You play the game. <laughs> nice to hear you say that, Mr. Hollett. It's a matter of mutual confidence, really. And after all, every man working for missiles knows that we're all in the same game together, that essentially we're all out for the same thing. Of course, you see, it's entirely different from the Soviet Union. There they are all working for the same thing. It is, it is a classless society. Here, you've got to watch it. That is why the workers have to stand solid. Yes, yes, they struck me as being pretty solid. I must say it's very heartening having new intellectuals coming into the working class movement like this. One has to do something. (laughs) True, brother, true. I see from your particulars you was at college in Oxford. Yes, I was. Yes, I was up there myself. Really? Yes, I was at the Balliol Summer School, 1946. Very good toast and preserves they give you at tea time, as you probably know. No, I didn't know, actually. (laughs) <laughs> Get that good toast and preserves at tea time, eh? Well, there you have it, you know, perfect example. It's been going on, what, for centuries? And even they've done shows about it in the first half of the last century, for heaven's sakes, talking about cartels, people making deals. And uh, that's a great movie. If you ever get to see I'm All Right, Jack, boy, there's more wisdom in that one movie than I've seen in a lot of movies over a long period of time. Uh, so what did you think of that particular 
clip there, Paul. Well, I think it's much a confirmation of everything <laughs> we've been saying. I mean, you can take anything and turn humour into it. Uh, just, just given the situation here now in Sweden with this new campaign, it, it, it's hard really to laugh about it. It, uh, it suddenly has come home. Well, what does that actually mean? Are people now um, revolting against it there, or are they still? Or would you say that the general populace is still in favor of these kinds of laws? No, it's very. It's becoming more and more polarized. I wouldn't say that most people are in favor of such laws. There are just another, just enough people who support it and would help. That you do have to look over your shoulder, which sort of really brings me to the. The next thing I wanted to bring up, it's gone from the corporate level down to the personal and private level. Mm-hmm. That, uh, this week, the Swedish tax authority announced that it be launching a new website that allows people to inform on those whom they suspect of tax evasion or other infractions of the tax code. In particular, the tax office wants to hear from people who know of any off-the-books uh, work or black work, we call it. Um, the category of black work even includes such things as paying a boy from the neighborhood to rake leaves or mow the lawn. Uh, the most common form of black work in Sweden is babysitting, which is a very widely broken law in that regard. However, the real target of the campaign are adults who perform household work or home repairs, uh, errand services for older people, and many other kinds of temporary work. Uh, moreover, in the past few years, there have been hair salons and restaurants that have long been the target of black work investigations. And, of course, the tax office wants to hear from anyone with suspicions about anyone else. And uh, it was shown in the Swedish paper, uh, Dagens Industry, that the tax office receives 20,000 tips per year. That's more than 50 a day by letter or telephone. And by introducing the webpage, they hope to get another 10,000 tips each year. And they get this figure from a similar experience in New Zealand, where such an increase in the number of tips occurred in New Zealand inland revenue when it initiated its web pace informant service. And, and what I wanted to add, you were asking, could such a thing come to Canada? Well, hmm. from a European perspective, if something can come to New Zealand, which sort of is part of the broader British realm, you have a common history, a common law, a common idea of, uh, you know, idea of rights and that. In our point of view, it can happen in New Zealand, it can happen in Canada, it can happen in England, it can happen in Australia. Anyway, well, I wonder what you think of that. Well, I was surprised to see that New Zealand was was even there in that in this whole scenario. Are we really talking about the same thing with them? Do they have cartels in New Zealand that they uh, endorse in one situation and not in another? Or is well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking so much about, about uh, the cartels, but just I'm talking about your neighbors who who see uh, just you personally will will stitch you out. Well, that's a, tax. that depends on how much privacy, I guess, you have. I'm curious about this, what, what, what you're calling black work in Sweden. And you talk about, um, you know, somebody who rakes the leaves or does babysitting and things of that nature. Essentially, where is the concern more? Is it, is it income tax or sales tax that, that is the concern of the government, or is it both in, in Sweden? Well, it would be, uh, in that case, it would be income tax and payroll tax. The idea that you're hiring someone to do work for you uh, without you know, paying the withholding taxes at all. 
The underlying thing, though, Paul, isn't it just simply lost revenue to the government to fund their socialist schemes? I know that Sweden is an extremely socialist society, even more so than our own socialist dystopia that we have here. And so they have to scrape for every cent they can to to fund their programs. Do you think maybe that's at the heart of it? Well, it's definitely at the heart of their motivation. But uh, I'm really wondering what is the motivation of people who would snitch out their neighbors and uh well you know when you you put it that way i was wondering okay so i hire somebody to do babysitting they're not just selling me a service they're i'm now their employer is that how sweden looks at things there because that's not how it would be done here a babysitter would just be someone selling a service like like a like a variety store going in the variety store and buying something that's a complete yes but the variety yes but the variety store has to register in that case for you know, as a business, has to pay, in that case, sales tax, has to pay other sort of taxes and income tax. So that's what it is. If you're not an employee of someone, you're like someone like me who's an independent contractor, I have to be registered and I have to pay all sorts of taxes. This, uh, just hiring some young person. You have to remember in Sweden, you're taxed right from the very first penny. There's no sort of cutoff. Uh-huh. So if, you're in, if a young lad earns $10 a week cutting grass in the summer, He's supposed to declare that. I think that is a very salient point here because, of course, over in Canada, we have basic personal exemptions and people earning basically under $10,000 don't even have to file an income tax return if they're not expected to pay taxes. Well, what, what I want to point out is, like, like I said, there's uh, a lot of people who are against it and a lot of people are for it, but there's a few tax offices in Europe who are really pulling out of stops and, and trying to... Trying to called a guilt to make people feel feel really bad and they, they give us such complete lies that the whole idea is that the reason why the economies and the governments of Europe are broke is because there's so much tax cheating. That if <laughs> everyone would pay this tax, then everything would be fine and we could probably even lower the tax rate. The reason we have such high tax is because so many people aren't paying what they're supposed to be paying. And either you believe that or you don't, but, I mean, I know every single penny any government gets is going to be spent, whether it's a lot or a little. So I really don't have any faith in that. Do you have any, do you have any Paul, um, opinion on what may motivate one person to rat out on their neighbour? What, what, for what purpose? Well, in, in Europe there is a phenomenon. It's known in German as schadenfreude, and you don't have a word for it in English. but I think we use that word, actually. It, well, you use that word, exactly. It, it's actually to the credit of Anglo-Saxon society that you don't really have this concept. When people actually, you take joy in someone else's misery or failing. I mean, this, this whole idea of ratting out your neighbor is nothing new. People rat their neighbors out for a long time, and it's just a form of entertainment, almost. Wow. People feel proud of it, that I can recount a personal experience when I first came to Sweden in the late 90s. Uh, my fiancé's father asked me to paint a, a fence in the garden, which he was going to give me some money for. And he told me all about the neighbors and what they were doing and who they were, and they really seemed like friends. But later he said, whatever you do, don't mention you're getting money for this. And at first I thought I was a bit paranoid, but I've learned that people who've known each other for 20, 30 years who are supposed to be best friends, they will think you out to the stage for something like that. That's just unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's just. Can you really call them friends if they would even do that in the first place? Maybe the whole sense of what what, pe- well, what Europeans you, you call friendship what? is something different. 
Well, the idea is that these tax cheaters, all the way from cartels down to individual people, are supposed to feel shamed. I think we find the identities of any informant, that they should have their names and their faces printed in the newspaper under big heading, collaborator. I really, really think they are. I mean, it's becoming so polarized here. You really are on one side or the other. And if your friend is going to get you in trouble with the law because your son cut the grass for the neighbor for $10 or something, and yes, you're a collaborator. Well, that's pretty sad. Very. Uh, are we coming to that here, you think? Well, no, well, not, to that, not to that extent, I don't think, though... Um, I think there's the mentality that the government should be taxing people more, should be trying to get as much as they can. There is a mentality against people who are so-called tax cheaters, against the black market, um, against cartels. So the mentality is here to the extent that it is over in uh, Sweden, where you are, Paul. I don't think we're there yet, but uh, I give, think, give I them think, time. I think, <laughs> I think that why they're there is because of their desperation with their financing. Yes. And that's going to come to any country where the, where the governments have finally spent, just spent themselves out of existence. And they're going to blame the people that they're robbing on their own spending. And that's pretty well how I see it. Yeah. Paul, I, our time has gone. Thank you for Thank joining you us. Thank you very much, Beth. And Thank thanks you, for giving us Good a heads up of what's uh, going on in Europe. <laughs> and that's it for today. We've got to go and hope that you will join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction as always. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you there. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Supposing I annoy you in this interview... <laughs> How do I know you won't go back to your office, press a button, and call up my tax oh. records, my oh, hospital no. records, no, my no. police no, records? No, 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 Bob. You know as well as I do that's not the way we do things in this country. Well, then what's the database for if it's not to check up on people? You know, that's a very interesting question. <laughs>